If I have children headed to Children's Church with Mrs. Murray, that's uh, time to go down, head on down for that. Don't throw any elbows on the way down, just go quietly down. We're studying God and government, a topic that, that some have said, oh, that's really a tough topic to, to find in the Bible or something to deal with. And if you really look at the Bible, it's one of the most uh, central topics of the scriptures because God is the sovereign of the universe. He's delegated authority to every human being, every responsibility is down. And that's what government is. And when you see it in that term, and just look at the, the concept of the kingdom, government's a huge topic. It's central to everything. And your walk with God is a function of self-government. Last time we were together, we looked at the life of Samson, the tragic and silly, in so many ways, satirical life of Samson. And we saw that he was a man who had a purpose for his life that God designed from from eternity past. And before he was even born, he told his mother how it was going to go. And the theme of Samson's life was basically a, a subtle disregard for God's word yet a success in God's providence. God's going to bring about what he wants to do and his sovereignty despite man's failure for which man is responsible in his choices. And I think in Samson you can see, like many of the places in the Old Testament, you can see that connection between God sovereignly getting his ultimate objective and man being responsible in his failure to make, as he makes bad decisions. And he's free to make those bad decisions. God wants him to make the good decisions. But there is this coalescence of God's eternal decree where God gets his way, and man is very often making bad decisions. And it doesn't contradict God's sovereignty that man is sinful. And the the resolution of these things is settled, I think, in the concept of eternity. Man is here below, God is there above in an infinite distance between us and God in terms of our experience. And to try to put God's sovereignty at the level of man's decision-making and say, for example, as some will do, that if man is making free choices, then God isn't really sovereign. To do that is to misunderstand that creator-creature distinction, that God is infinite and sovereign in the sense of his eternal purposes, and he's not the author of sin, and he's not the cause of evil, and that's so important. He's not the personal uh, decider who has decided that men will be wicked. He has decided to sovereignly create free agents, and there's a difference. You see the difference, and they will do what they choose, and God has incorporated that into his eternal purpose. But man's sinfulness doesn't cancel God's eternal purpose. So, example, in Judges 13, it says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the cycle of the judges. All through the story of the judges, they have been given their inheritance in Joshua. Mark. They've been given their inheritance in Joshua. And now they're in the land, and they're basically in the cycle of disobedience, correction, calling out to God, deliverance, being, being established again, and then they disobey And then God disciplines them. And then they call out to him. And that's the cycle. And so here it is. They did again evil in the sight of the Lord so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. And there's a very clear cause effect in terms of our experience here below. They chose to go into idolatry and God met that choice with a consequence. And this is one of the central principles of self-government or any government is we are free by God's design, 
to make our decisions with our volition. It's a big word, V-O-L-I-T-I-O-N, the capacity to choose. We are delegated with this capacity, and when you make your choice, it is truly your choice. But you have no choice about the consequences of those actions. You can't control what God does in response, and it is by eternal design. There is a response that God has to our choices. And so they did evil. It doesn't say God caused them to do evil. They did evil inside of the Lord, and then he met them in their disobedience with the Philistines. And that's predicted very clearly prophesied in Leviticus 26. This is what God would do with his covenant people who had a covenant with him from Mount Sinai and from the plains of Moab. God had told them this is how it's going to be. And so it was. They went into idolatry. He gave them to the Philistines. And the the judges are the military deliverers. They're the people that God raised up as the executives to, to rule over Israel, in the, especially in, the, in the, the job of military defense and conquest of the enemies. He would, they, he would raise these judges up, and they'd throw off the oppressors that he had brought to them. And so he brought the Philistines, and he raised up Samson for Samson to remove the Philistines. And so this is, this is the story of Samson. And it doesn't say that the people, it says they served, uh, he gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And it's very interesting that in this part of the judges, it doesn't say, and the children of Israel called out to the Lord. So then he raised up a deliverer. It just goes straight into the story of God raising up Samson out of the um, Manoah um, and his wife, who isn't named. And the miraculous birth of, uh, of Samson, so many of the the Critical people in the Bible are born to women that beforehand were barren, and that's a great reproach. And yet, and then, and then Hannah has a baby and gives him to the Lord, and they have Samuel. And this is the story of uh, of Samson as well. And uh, and we did the story of Samson. We saw that he uh, was not functioning in his heart as a Nazarite. He was designated as a Nazarite. He didn't cut his hair, but he was had no problem stepping into things that he, he were forbidden to him, like going after Philistine wives. And he married this Philistine woman, and you know the story. He, he said, get her for me, for she's right in my eyes, or she looks good to me. Literally, literally in Hebrew, she's right in my eyes. And uh, their parents said, no, don't, don't marry this, and the, this woman. And the reason I'm bringing this back to you is because it shows you the family It shows you the household that Samson grew up in. God starts with Samson, not with him, but with his parents and Manoah's wife. He gives the word through the angel of the Lord to Manoah's wife. You're going to have the son. He's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to deliver his people from the Philistines. And then she forgets part of that message and says, okay, he's going to be a Nazarite and forgets the part about he's going to be the judge. And she tells her husband, this man appeared to me and told me we're going to have a son and, and, and that whole story. But it's a family affair. And we know that these people knew something of God's word because when he says, get me that beautiful Philistine girl, I like what she looks like, she looks right in my eyes. People in the judges were doing whatever was right in their own eyes, and that's the point. He's not supposed to marry a Philistine woman, he's supposed to marry a believer. In that time, that would have been a person within the household of the family of Israel. And you marry a believer, you don't marry unbelievers. The principle throughout the scriptures, and we use Second Corinthians 6.6 6 to show us that, They'll be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And it's not primarily about marriage there, but it certainly would be the primary application there. There's no more yoking that you'll ever have 
than marriage, right? So, so don't marry unbelievers is the principle there, but Samson isn't worried about that. He doesn't think about what God thinks. He's, is she right in God's eyes for me? No, she's right in my eyes. Get her for me. She's the one. I mean, I get her. She gets me. We have a connection. And so he tells his parents, get her for me for a wife. And that sounds strange to us. He tells who to do what? Get her for me as a wife because it's a family affair. And this highlights this issue of the family. Samson is a product of Manoah's household. Now, they did give him God's word and said, what about the children of Israel? You're not supposed to marry a Philistine girl. And he said, no, for she looks good to me. And so they, uh, they say, well, you're volitionally responsible. You have to make your choices. And so I guess we'll com- comply. I think it's a mistake for the parents to comply here. I think they should have said, we're not going to be part of that. But, but you can see the problem. There's a breakdown in the family. Now we either are at war in the household because Samson wants her and his parents won't arrange it, and they have to because that's the way it was in their culture. I want her and you won't arrange it. Well, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That kind of warfare within the household. They don't want warfare probably. They've had enough of it, so they don't want warfare anymore, so they, they comply. And so, I, again, I think it was probably a mistake because they have to make their choices. Samson has to make his choices, but that's the thing that's going on in a household. The household, the family, it is the, the arena of some of the most difficult uh, parts of life. The greatest suffering that I've seen as a pastor has been marital suffering. The greatest suffering I've seen people go through has been uh, something to do with the hardship of marriage. And uh, some of you are starting to sweat. You're like, is he going to start talking about my story? No, I'm not. Okay. What I'm saying is that as I have come to know you and lived this life, the hardest thing you'll ever do is be a sinner and not want to look at your sin and be married to a sinner who doesn't want to look at her sin or his sin. And you're dealing with that, I don't want to look at myself, and you're so, and, but you're so aware of the other person's stuff. And you're dealing with somebody that's so, how can she be so blind or how can he be so clueless about this thing that's so obvious? And we have to deal with that. And all I can think of, if I'm in a wrong frame of mind, is that that person is wrong and they don't see it. And all they can think of is that I'm wrong. And, and you get this, this catastrophe of brokenness and unforgiveness and grudge holding and all the stuff that basically ends up in dissolution. And it's a problem. And some people are married and they say, well, we were married, God said. Jesus said, let no man separate whom God has joined together. So we're going to stick it out. And then they they stick it out, and it's this hardship, and they, they suffer. And they never forgive, and they never, they never take it to God. They just gut it out. And, uh, and, and I commend people for, for committing themselves to God and, and doing it His way. But do the whole thing. If you're married, make the most of it. But you can see what my illustration, household starts with marriage. God designed and invented marriage from the very, well, he designed it apparently from eternity past, but he invented it in history in Genesis 2 when he took woman from man's side and built her, formed her into a woman. That was the simultaneous creation of woman and marriage at the same moment. It really was. And if you look in Genesis 2 and you try to find a wedding ceremony, there's not much of a ceremony because the marriage isn't the ceremony. And we like the, the public pro- proclamation, commitment, covenant that, that we all celebrate and witness. We do, and that's, there's value to that, but that's not what a marriage is. 
The marriage is the covenant, the commitment between the two to the institution before God. That's what a marriage is. And it's the greatest source of, uh, it's one of the greatest sources of blessing in life. And it's one of the greatest challenges of life. And again, I'm talking not just about marriage and the romantic side of things that we do so appreciate and emphasize, but I'm talking about household, what marriages produce. I tell the young people that are going to come to me, we're going to talk about getting married, that you're about to become a new country. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And that leaving of household is reminiscent of what will happen later in Abraham. When Abraham, leave your father's house and go to a place I'm going to show you. You're starting a new country of two people, as it were, a new institution that didn't exist before. And when you say us, when you say covenant commitment, us, and this is it, this is for life, which is what we do when we get married, you are starting a new institution that God is, has plenty of revelation about, plenty of instruction, and it produces children by God's design. And it isn't just to produce children, but one of the big things that happens that we don't tend to think about in a romantic youth is that it brings kids. That's not a romantic idea. People with kids, they don't date. They don't go out together. They take care of the kids, and then they collapse. And they're, and they're tired and worn out. And, uh, of course, we... Guys, we do take time. We do try to find a way, share each other's loads and babysit and stuff so that we can go spend some time just on a date. But boy, is it a lot of work. And you don't think of kids as romantic because it's not. (laughs) It's hard. It's work. The baby comes into the world through labor. And moms, your sorrows don't necessarily abate because they just changed their form, because now you're dealing with another sinful nature, dealing with another human being into this mix that you've already been dealing with, this, this wilderness of two people trying to dodge their own, the truth about themselves and having to face it because they're stuck together. <sighs> she looks good to me. Pretty, pretty soon becomes, that is a mirror that I don't want to look into of what I'm dealing with. And that's what marriage provides, it does. And so the, the, the problem of household is the problem of sin. And so the reason it's bad in your marriage is because you're selfish or they're selfish or, the, you know, or, or something involving sin. And the solution is that love covers a multitude of sins and the power of the Spirit in you. You can be what you're supposed to be. And so we're talking household. Samson's household was partially functional. Don't you know God's Word? They remind him. But then it's not functional because they say, well, you're going to do what you're going to do. And they open the door, as far as they're concerned, to participate in his error of the Philistine wife. What happens to that girl? That beautiful. I mean, just imagine, this girl was beautiful. Samson is probably uh, very desirable as a, as a young bachelor in Israel. The girl that he said is the one, she must have really been a looker. How does she end up? She ends up burned to a crisp in her father's house with her parents. Get her for me, for she looks right in my eyes. Cut to the Philistines burn her in her house, in her father's house, and kill everybody. 
And we're like, that's not Christmassy. That's not something to talk about on Sunday morning. Well, it's a consequence. It's part of the natural flow of things when you act in folly. We don't realize the consequences of our choices. And so what I'm trying to show with the dramatize with the life of Samson is that household is really significant. It's not just trite, focus on the family language. Uh, Dobson's ministry is built on the idea, not that we're going to take the culture back, I think, and I think this is true, but that the scriptures really emphasize family and we as a civilization have lost it. We've lost the idea. The reason I'm talking about household or family in this discussion of God and government is because government begins with individual self-government, the great delegations we've discussed at your volition. You make your choices. And it continues as you choose to marry and as God chooses to provide children. Now we have multiple volitions in an institution, that country of one that now is, in our case, eight. We have those six children. That's a new thing. And all those individual volitions have their place and their role, and the adults are supposed to train the children. If you'll turn back, we're in Judges, if you'll turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We will focus on the family. Deuteronomy is, uh, as Mike taught on Sunday very ably, uh, Deuteronomy is the heart of the Old Testament. It's the marching orders, as it were, the, the living orders for um, the generation after the Exodus generation as they'll go into the land, the, the generation of conquest, the Joshua generation. It's a restatement of the Mosaic Law in a more formal Suzerain Vassal Treaty format. Uh, meaning that God is the great king and then the Israel, the people, are the lower authority and he's delegating this down. And the heart of Deuteronomy, as we said, is Deuteronomy 6. And I just want to remind you of how central family, central household is in the training of the next generation and their ability to self-govern. Individual self-government is your volition, the great delegation from God. It's a stewardship and he cares how you use it. And part of that, parents, is what we do with the children in training them for individual self-government. He says, O Israel, in verse 3, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. He's prefacing the great Shema of hero Israel, in verse 4, with multiplication. And we're going to build the nation in the land. You're going to have this population explosion. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. The Lord is one means only Yahweh is God. There is no other God. And we know, beginning in Genesis 1, that he speaks in plural, and yet he's singular. And we know from the Lord Jesus' greater revelation or the, the progress of revelation that we have one God who exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that triune God is the one God and Deuteronomy 6.4 is saying Yahweh, the Creator, is the only God. And then you have a command that is strange to us in Deuteronomy 6.5. This is, I'm sorry for the, those of you who are used to the screen and putting the Bible up and visual. This is very Bible intensive today. We're, we're both services. We don't have any background. Just, just, just stuck with your Bible. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. It's right about there. In my Bible, you know, it's very early on. 
Deuteronomy 6, 4 is the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elheinu, Adonai Chai. That is, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord, the Lord alone. And then, in verse 5, the command. What does God command Israel? After saying, listen and obey, hear what I'm going to say. What is the great command? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the great command. So he said, listen, in verse 4, there's only one God, and this is what he wants, for you to love him. Let that settle in. There's so much in the Bible. There's so much theology. We could, Solomon in Ecclesiastes says there's no end to the writing of books. Let's cut through a lot of the detail to the big summary. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. And it doesn't stop with you. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on the forehead. You'll write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Coming and going. Some of you are like, I wonder what he means by binding them on the house and putting them on your hat, you know, rolling them up, putting them in your ball cap. Like, is, like what's this about? He's saying that the commands of God, beginning with the great one to love God, is something that we're going to pass down and it's something that we're going to bind to ourselves and remind ourselves of constantly, coming and going. Coming into the house, there's, there it is, going out of the house, there it is, leaving the gate. That is about loving God, about my relationship with him. And, uh, you know, sometimes we forget the reason for the binding of these words around the, the, the house and on the head, headgear and stuff. The, the reason for that language is because we forget Um, we recently showed some of the youth here uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life and talked through it. I always love Uncle Billy. Um, he's got like four ribbons around his fingers trying to remember stuff. And he forgets which ribbon represents which thing. But he's got these ribbons and he's just running around because he's a basket case. We forget. We, try, we tie a ribbon. We, we try to give ourselves a sticky note. That's the idea is don't forget, keep it in frontal, keep it, keep it in, in your thinking. But this part in verse 6, uh, verse 7 is uh, about the household. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them every phase of your day. What does it mean when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way? That's called a merism. It encompasses the whole of your day. You're either in your house or outside your house. So when you're in the house or when you're walking outside the house. And it's the same merism. He does it again when you um, lie down and when you rise up. That doesn't mean I pray night-night prayers and I pray good morning prayers. All right? It's the bookends of the day, lying down, rising up, the entirety. There's no phase of your day, of your life, where it's not focal. It's even on your gates. It's on your doorposts. It's on... It's on you. It's on you. You look down. Or, oh, there it is. And you. And it's not the symbol of the thing. People get excited about putting scrolls on different things. It's that you're keeping this frontal in your thinking, 
and you're passing that down generationally. And we all struggle with this, but this is God's design for blessing. Remember verse 3, that do this so that it go well with you and you multiply in the land. It's God's blessing of the successive generations that he equips the parents to train them in the judicious use of their volition. Your capacity to make decisions is a stewardship that God has given you. And the, the, the capacity of your children to make decisions is the stewardship God has given them. And they have to be trained in its use. They have to be trained and developed in that capacity, in that strength. And let's think about the decisions that children, that all of us, that we have to be trained to, to make. What does that look like, that, that delegation? What does it look like that I'm making decisions? Well, sin, personal sin, is always a choice. The Bible knows of, well, what about the things I didn't know were sins, and I, I want to do them, but I didn't know it was a sin. The Bible knows of this. It talks about inadvertent sin and, uh, and various sacrifices in Israel under that administration for, for this, for when you didn't know. I think 1 John 1.9 covers the things you didn't know were sins. All unrighteousness. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. I didn't know this and that was, was out of bounds, but I didn't know I did this, and so I confess that. So the things that you didn't know. I think that God knows that we don't know everything there is about sin. I think we'd be very amazed to know the full extent of our moral weakness and failure compared to the perfect, infinite righteousness of God and how God deals with us despite how corrupt we are. And I know we don't want to think of ourselves that way. Again, like in marriage, you don't look at you and your problem. You look at the other person. They don't look at them. They look at you and... and uh, <laughs> it's very sanctifying to have to be brought to yourself and see how things really are. But every decision, every decision is an exercise of that delegation God has given us. That's government. The founders of this country establishing a free system where you would have a, a government that was limited of not overarching and overreaching, but limited on what it could do to people. And the Bill of Rights is restrictions, handcuffs on the government. It can't, it can't uh, illegally search and seize. It can't force you to self-incriminate. You know, these, you know, it can't restrict your freedom to speak. That idea of, of government was the idea that you had individuals made in God's image who are self-governing. And that's why, I think it was Adams, you have to have a religious and moral people for this government because it won't work for a different people. We're giving maximum expression of self-government. was the idea. That was, that was what they were going for. And a, a system that has its limitations and weaknesses but isn't a horrible system is horribly corrupted by sinful people. Do you know of an example in the Bible where a good, God-given system is corrupted by sinful people? Do you know of an example of this? What if God wrote the Constitution? What if you had from the very finger of God, this is your set of laws for the nation? He did. That's the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. That's the law that God gave Israel. He did give them a constitution. So would that be a good or a corrupted system? That'd be a good system that God made. So what's going on? Broken people administering it. So by the time you get to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, who is probably writing what he writes in 606 or right before Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. So almost a thousand years after the giving of the law. What's he saying? How long, O Lord? How long is justice going to come out perverted? How long are you going to let these wicked people pervert your good laws? 
They're, we can't go to court and get a fair ruling. It's always corrupt. Justice always comes out perverted. See, he's dealing with a completely corrupted, broken system. You know, they're talking about the swamp, right? And they mean the Sanhedrin, they mean Jerusalem. Not, not Washington, D.C. Because a righteous system has been corrupted by sinful people. And where, where did that start? What's the cause? What's the source of the breakdown in government? Beloved, it is not a system that is designed to make the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That's not the problem. It isn't the system. It's the people that are functionaries in the system. I mentioned to you, while we're talking about self-government, I mentioned to you that the gas prices are markedly increasing as you steadily drive up the East Coast. I just experienced this empirically. We went from something like, I think the, the best, I don't want to start lying to you here ever. I think there's a dollar difference between where we started in East Texas and where we landed here. I think there's a, maybe a dollar, something like that, in gas prices. And this is just, it's just an interesting thing, I, not a moral statement. But by the time you start getting into the, the states that tax the fuel at a higher rate, the government and the state, it's a state tax problem. The, when you, as you get up here, you have to ask the question, why are the people taxing themselves at a higher rate as we go further north? And it's because they've chosen this for themselves. Individual self-government it has broken, and we've said we have to we have to pay for whatever we're, they're paying for. And so we're going to have to get more tax money. So we're going to continue to vote for people that will continue to fleece us. And so we have, a lower co- we have a lower standard of living here. We do. We have a lower standard of living than, than you'll have elsewhere because um, there's been this corruption and people have kept asking for it. And they're going to keep asking for it apparently. It would take a miracle for the, the, the rank and file of the individual electorate here, the, the people of this, the, for example, Connecticut. It would take a miracle for them to wake up and say, well, we don't, have to, we don't have to have them steal all our money like this. We don't have to have these ridiculously high taxes for all the things that they, all the entitlements that they've, they've elected to, to support and all the corruption that, that keeps going. And, but hey, we're building submarines, Right? And I don't think we're building submarines with gas money, with gas taxes. That's a federal thing. So what I'm trying to say is that um, you can see the breakdown in this one little example of individual self-government because we aggregate together in our elections. And I've always said, you know, you shouldn't talk about politics and, and ministry in the pulpit. I think we have to. We have to talk about right and wrong. We have to talk about what God wants and what he, what he says and what we're responsible for. We have to talk about worshiping God in every decision we make, including in the, in the election booth when we, go make a, when we go vote. We should do it as worship to God and with our consciences clear before him say, this is what he would want for me to do on the basis of these principles. And that, See, I'm, I'm trying to equip you to think and not to tell you what to think. But that's the problem is that it's not the system of the government, and it's not, it's not going to be fixed by which people we put in power. The problem of the declining civilization, we just, they, just voted, <laughs> they just voted to further deny uh, limitations on, or, or, or restrictions or recognition of what marriage actually is. They, they voted to further uh, decrease our actual religious liberty 
in the favor of, of sexual liberty and saying, you know, you can say whatever you want. And, and when, when, the, when the conservatives or whoever tried to put in some restrictions on this recent uh, Respect for Marriage Act, there was, it was rejected because that's not where, where things are tending. And the, 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 the vice grips are coming. It's going to hurt. This is, this is going to hurt what they're, the, the, the framework they're building for oppression. Um, and how does this happen? It's not that we had an election and elections have consequences. It's prior to that. Why did the election go the way it did? And why do people that seem like they have integrity end up being corrupted? It's because you have a rank and file decline of individual self-government in the civilization. That's the problem. The problem is the electorate. Politics, they say, Andrew Breitbart, famous for saying, politics are downstream of culture. Well, what is culture? Culture is the aggregation of the attitudes, desires, linguistic preferences, artistic expression of the heart of the individual person, and it's aggregated together. The, The culture works this way. What people want sells, and so People produce art that people want because it sells, and then it's a reflection of what people want and who they are. And so look at your art. Look at your culture. It's Francis Schaeffer predicted where we are today, uh, 70 years ago. And, and so I guess what I want you to see is that you can't ever hang your hopes on governmental processes like elections. You can't hang your hopes on so-and-so for 2024, any so-and-so, especially one so-and-so, but any so-and-so. You cannot hang your hopes on these humans and their prospects to, to do what? To, like a dictator, come in and rein in the excesses of individual uh, self-government where we're not governing as we should? It starts in the individual heart, and that builds to household. And I want to illustrate household for you as a governmental function. Household is a governmental function in Joshua chapter 20. If you'll turn there as we're going to kind of close down this experiment in Bible exposition using just a Bible. Go to Judges chapter, uh, sorry, Joshua chapter 20, which Mark wonderfully presented on Wednesday night. Mark Raybon so appreciated that message. We were on the road to Memphis while you were teaching. This passage seems so foreign to us because it's law and order. It's the penal system in God's design for national Israel. It's how God said that they're going to do it. And he uses his institution of household, husband and wife and their children, he uses that institution as the basis for policing in Israel. You had in Israel an expectation of universal military service. What that means is, that every household has men in it, every man who's of, of a necessary age, has to be capable and willing to muster to go fight God's wars when the king or the judge would rally the army. Joshua uh, shows us this. We have it in the book of Numbers. Numbers is the numbering of the nation for military conquest, for the advancement. And so there is a martial aspect to the nation. It isn't everything. It isn't the main thing. But it is true that every house has a policeman because every house has a soldier and every soldier is a spearman. 
And so this idea of, um, we'll call the special category of angels, and they're the ones, the authorities, that's foreign to the way God set up Israel. The authority is the household. The authority is the father. And he's defended the household in aggregate by going to fight as needed. And so that's, that's the, the worldview and the attitude. Now, America had this, not universal military service, but a universal instinct called the Minuteman, as we got started, saying, this is mine, and I'm going to protect it. It's what God has entrusted to me, and I'm going to steward that. The idea of the American shepherd, that I'm protecting what God has provided for me. So one of my favorite things about our country is the idea of the, the individual man in his household protecting his. That old thing that, that your house is your castle. Now that can become over, over abused, overused, it can be abused. Wicked and arrogant men can take that idea and turn their house into a prison castle where Rapunzel is up in the tower and she has a horrible life and he's really the witch in the story if you follow the metaphor. And I don't mean wickedness. I mean a righteous man using necessary, necessary force and aggression to protect what God has entrusted to him. How did David become the shepherd of Israel? He used a shepherd's tool to kill the great wolf. He used a shepherd's tool to take down Goliath and became the beloved soldier in Israel. And that's how God established him in the hearts of his people to be king. There's a place for violence, and we never want to use it, but as needed. It has to be brought to bear, and we don't. And, we, and by the way, we honor and revere and respect those who sacrifice themselves and even their consciences, in a sense, when they have to do what must be done in the use of, of uh, controlled aggression, uh, righteous violence. And so that's part of it. I'm not going to fight. I don't want to fight. I'm sorry, I don't want to fight to protect my family, but I, if I have to, I will. If it comes to that, it's not going to go very far in that direction because this is, it stops with me. And that idea of the individual householder, that's going on in the very hearts of the people because they've all been trained, they've all been uh, given this charge in the Joshua conquest. And so when you get to Joshua 20, you have the penal system. There are no police. There are heads of household and their sons. I say again, there are no police in Israel. There are heads of household and their adult sons who are building, who are going to go build other households. And those households together aggregate, and you call that a clan or a tribe. And that was the system. That's how God set it up, and it's all based on household. And so, so think, think about this. You're the, you're, the, you're the ruling generation, and you've got kids that are about to launch. Uh, Genesis says, I'm sorry, Psalms says they're, they're arrows in the quiver. You're about to launch them into the world. They're gonna, these men are going to take wives and build houses, households of their own. And there's going to be loyalties between because honor your father and mother. And, that, and that's going to build this structure that these are the 12 tribes of Israel. It's household. As, and, it's, and how our households run, individual self-government, individual husbands and wives and children making their choices before God. That's the design in God's economy as he set up Israel. And, and there's, a, there's a debate. There's a debate about this. Is God dealing with just tribal people and he's working with that structure and culturally so that, you know, it's not necessarily a prescription. It's just what he did. It's a description. Or is God saying, this is how to do it based on what I've done in creation? And those, that's, that's a sociological debate. And I think most Bible-believing Christians come to the latter position that, no, God is honoring his institution of household as he sets up clans and tribes. Clan is a, it just means extended family. Think Thanksgiving. 
Think about if you have a big family. We're, we're, if, if God would just bless us that these boys would stay close to him and, and, and so close to us as we stay close to the Lord. And can you imagine the get-togethers with the grandkids someday? <laughs> we're going to need some doctors and nurses and stuff to, to manage the football game. Um, but just th- that's, that's where the idea of, of government comes from. And everybody's protecting what's theirs. And a righteous man protects what's his righteously. He doesn't take more than is his. He says, no, that's, that's mine. Back off. That's my household. Don't, don't infringe on my household. And an unrighteous man with, with a lot of power, a lot of sons, will go and maraud and, and be wicked with that power. And so it's individual self-government expanded to the, the household and, and a big household. So this is the household in the penal system. God's institution, number three, individual self-government, marriage, household, children, family and children. Listen to how the household works in their penal system. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses in Numbers 35. He already gave instruction in the book of the mustering of the children of Israel for war. I already gave you this instruction. Now that you've got the conquest, you designate these cities of refuge. That the manslayer... What is a manslayer? Is a man who has slayed another man. <laughs> it's a person who's killed someone. The manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there and they shall become your refuge from the goel damim, from the avenger of blood, the redeemer of blood. Who is the avenger of blood? It's the brother or the father of the person that's been killed because God set up a limitation on human reprisal in government called the lex talionis. The law of retaliation is, the, is the, what that Latin means in English. Lex talionis, the law of retaliation. And the idea is that if you hurt someone, they can't kill you for it. If you take out someone's eye in a fight, they can't kill you. They can only bring as much retribution as you inflicted, eye for an eye. Now, we hear eye for an eye, we're like, that's terrible. You're going to take out someone's eye. Well, notice that you just took out someone's eye. Don't do that. Don't hurt someone because it's coming back to you. And so that's, that's the law of retribution, and it worked in the various ways people harm one another. When humans fail in their, their, their delegated responsibility of self-government, very often they hurt one another in a way that they shouldn't. And that hurt has a God-given limitation. It has a God-given, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Deterrent. Don't take that person's eye. You're giving up your eye by doing so. And so it, it, it establishes a basis for, for society to function. Anything you do that you shouldn't do can easily come back to you, and it should so you protect what is yours, and you guard your actions, and you don't act ever in anger. But, well, I didn't mean it, you know, now, I, I'm sorry, now, I was just angry then, I did it in the heat of the moment. Yeah, but you did it, and so th- this, is, this is the consequence. And so notice how it kind of keeps everybody honest. Don't steal something. Boy, was there a deterrent for stealing. There's retribution, there's payback to the point where, well, I can't pay back, I don't have it. There's payback in some cases fourfold, I think in one case sevenfold, in the various uh, case law that God gives in Israel. You pay back what you owe plus a damage for the theft that you did. 
And if you can't pay it, guess what happens? You're working it off for them. You're washing their dishes and shoeing their horses or whatever until you have paid off what you owe. There's no sitting and, and rotting in a, in a cage and saying that's humane. At least we're not putting people in slavery. Our penal system is a form of slavery, I think, because it cages people and takes away their productivity. It takes away their, their, um, their bearing God's image and being creative and productive. And, uh, and there are all kinds of ways people define slavery, but I think it's very disturbing how we deal with this. We don't... We don't uh, let people make amends and actually pay back what they owe. They've paid their debt to society by just sitting in a cage. I think that's horrible. But the alternative is very messy. What God provides in Israel requires the town elders to really have a powerful hand. The sheriff, you know, comes about out of this idea. He's got a lot of power. He's got life and death uh, in a powerful way because you have to enforce this. And it gets, again, it gets very messy. There's no, there's no getting around the problem of human sin in government. But let's hear about what happens. The, the avenger of blood um, can go to the boundary of the penal city, of the, of the town of the city of refuge. He shall flee. The person that is the manslayer, the person that killed a man unintentionally, he shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the city gate and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. See, that's the government. That's local government. And they shall take him into the city to them and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. This is as close as Israel got to prison. It's not a cage, but it is the way the kids used to play tag. We used to play tag or hide and seek. This is home base. I'm on base. You can't kill me because I'm on base. Now, notice what happened. These are marshals now. Posse comitatus, we have in our legal system. The, the, the marshal deputizes a bunch of people to help him go bring the, the murderer to justice. Notice that the idea here in God's word is that the righteous avenger of blood, the brother of the man who's been killed, is chasing the man killer to the city of refuge. He's herding him in to the place where he'll be adjudicated by governing officials. But it's household. That's my brother, and so now it's my responsibility, and I have to go redeem the blood. And so he takes it to the authorities. He takes the person into the authorities, and that's the idea, that the person would go, and it would be adjudicated by disinterested, perhaps, city officials from the other town. And of course, there's probably um, personal connections and things, and you've got the, the question of conflict of interest, but this is a very interesting way that God set up Israel to do this when there's the worst thing that happens, which is someone is killed. He shall flee to one of these cities and stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of the city, and they shall take him into the city and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now if the avenger of blood, that's the goel damim, the redeemer of blood, pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand. So if he comes into Shechem or whatever the city of refuge is, hey, he's mine. That's Tom Chaney, and he killed my daddy, as uh, Matty Ross says in um, True Grit. The whole True Grit story is about a girl trying to be the avenger of blood for her father. All right, so she goes and gets Marshall, Marshall Cogburn, who's a man of True Grit, to go hunt down this scoundrel that killed her father. When you get to the city of refuge and you see old Tom Cheney sitting there and he killed your father, you don't get to go in and just kill him. 
You got to deal with the town council, with the elders. That's their job. And God is establishing local government. And it's sort of a prison board here. He shall, they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation, did not hate him beforehand. It was an accident, is basically the appeal of the manslayer, of the, of the um, man who's in prison. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. And then the manslayer shall return to his own city, to his own house, to the city from which he fled. So the brother, the father, the person that's aggrieved, that's been bereft of his child or his brother, that person that is the household avenger of blood has a duty to see this in. You don't just let this go, well, he killed my brother. Vengeance is as mine saith the Lord. Well, it is the Lord's. Vengeance does belong to the Lord. But God delegated to the household a responsibility of an eye for an eye. And he doesn't go and take, take vengeance on, him, on, his, on himself. He makes sure that this goes into the authorities and that there is a just deliberation. Guess what happens when it's determined on two witnesses that it was premeditated, that it wasn't an accident, that this guy did murder the person? And the Bible makes that distinction. Then it's the town council uh, executes the person. But the city of refuge is for someone that has overstepped even by accident. And now his blood, uh, the other person's blood is on his hands. And you have, it's amazing how this would have kept everyone, everybody honest. Do you want to be part of that posse that goes after the person who killed your brother? Do you want to go get, get, get justice? You got to deal with that moral consequence. Are you seeking vengeance for yourself? Are you seeking uh, uh, rectitude? Are you avenging and I'm sorry, redeeming the blood, or are you bringing your vengeance where God says vengeance is his? See, this is household stewardship. This is individual responsibility. That's what government is. And so much of government in our country today has lost this idea because we've lost our biblical worldview, that it starts with the individual. And the more I govern myself before God, and that's really what it is, individuals governing themselves and their own volition before God, by God's design, that's worship. That's my decisions with my resources are for Him. And I use my resources for His purpose, including the capacity to make choices. And that, that idea of freedom, that's what the freedom uh, that our founders gave us, that, that was their intention, uh, largely, that freedom isn't just an end in itself, what we're doing today is freedom as an end in itself, drag queen story hour at the local elementary school or whatever. Well, that's freedom. But it isn't really. It's enslavement. It's dooming children, for example, to, uh, to think that their own lusts, their sinful inclinations are right. It's shackling them to do whatever is right in their own eyes instead of being freed with the truth that no child, you have to restrain your lusts. You've got a problem called a sinful nature and you've got the capacity to make choices called a volition and those two things together are not a good combination. And your life is a process of learning to restrain your lusts against uh, what God wants and to embrace the things that God does want because you go from how you feel about disobeying God to what you think and what you believe and what you're responsible for. That's human self-government. And human self-government is the baseline for all government. And in Israel, God set it up as households. Now, isn't that just embracing the patriarchy? Father rules? Isn't that what that would be? 
Well, if you take away the guns, go back to spears and bows and arrows and knives and swords. You take away the cars, it's back to horses, camels, donkeys, oxen, mules. If you go back to that phase of life, you could see why a man with many sons is a force to be reckoned with because life is hard and men are strong compared to women by God's design. Women have an inner strength. They have a lot going for them. Understand I'm not putting women down at all. I'm saying there's a fundamental difference between the way we're designed and what we're made for. And in the world we live in today, we're kind of in a facade where a lot of that is seemingly cloaked. Try to wrangle some farm equipment, you know, Use that pry bar to, to attach that, that implement on that tractor. At some point, that older man is like, I need, I need one of these boys to come help me with this <laughs> because it's so heavy. That's how, we, that's how it is. And, and so I'm not proposing that, um, men, you have a right to make decisions and women have to follow those decisions no matter what because you're a man. That would be a satanic deception. What I'm saying is that every one of us, we all have our roles. And before we make a decision about you or me or somebody else, I should be connecting to my creator and worshiping him with the capacity he's given me to make choices. That is the design of human self-government. And when, that, when I say it that way, you say, well, then we're doomed because that's not what our civilization is capable of anymore. What do I say? What do I say? It's coming. The Lord Jesus is coming to rule. He'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. And for those that are head up to him, I'm here to serve you. I'm governing myself in terms of my decisions and your interests for your purpose and your power. There's no rod of iron for that. The rod of iron comes because man is stiff-necked and he won't submit to his creator. Next hour, we will uh, open Christmas season for me, for my pulpit time, with a look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the most exquisite demonstration of human self-government in all of world history. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of being in your word today, of thinking about a difficult topic that when we look at our culture, we don't really find uh, anything really connected to the way the Bible describes things. When we look in your word and your design, um, we see so critically that you've made us all in your image to rule and to reign that which you've entrusted to us. And we have much to be grateful for and much to serve you with. Father, don't let us sacrifice these waning days of the American experiment and lament. Don't let us waste our time in dithering about the way things are declining. But let us take the time you've given us, the resources, those various aspects of freedom that have been bought at such a high price in this country. Let us use these resources and assets in worship of you. Father, you've given us a mission to accomplish. It is still free for us to say Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead to give you eternal life. It's still free to tell anyone and everyone that they can have eternal life right now simply by trusting in Christ. Father, let us use the time, the precious moments of this life that you've given us, not for earthly pursuits, not to just satisfy our appetites, but to bring glory and honor to you in accomplishing that for which you've sent us, including us and committing us into the mission you've given your son to reveal you to the world. Father, you've given us your spirit of the greatest resource, whether we live in freedom or in, <clears throat> in tyranny, we have the freedom of the Holy Spirit. And don't let us forget it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.